Hello everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is you do to me? Don't know who you are, just a friend from another star. I have no idea what you're talking That's about. That's the poem from the 1977 Superman movie when they're flying. Oh. And she reads that crazy ass poem that I don't know where it came from. And That's a weird movie. Isn't it? When you look and at yet, it retrospectively, it's like a the, weird movie. The reason that I remember that was because of the Batman versus Superman news that's been making the rounds, all these trailers and stuff. And I just look at it and it's like, that's not a moment that'll come again. Anyway, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaports, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic book critique, news, and reviews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Seaport is on Patreon, supports smart criticism in comics. So, shall we go on to the news? Welcome to 2016. Not much has happened. I think people are just sort of Thankfully, hung- hungover yeah. from the New Year's celebrations, etc., and we don't have a lot of news, but there are a few interesting rumors rumors and, and developments. So let's start with the latest shots fired in the eternal DC versus Marvel War. This is like Apocalypse and New Genesis. They're just going to be going at it forever. Which one's which? That depends on what kind of fan you are. So basically, the rumor currently points to Netflix launching season two of Daredevil on the same day as Batman versus Superman. Astute listeners may be wondering, how does that make any kind of sense? Since, after all, by the very nature of Netflix, you could just get it and watch it whenever you want. You don't have to watch it on the same day as Correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Batman v Superman was moved when they announced it versus Captain America, the Civil War, the same date? I think think so. So Marvel is basically doing it twice? I think they're just like grabbing all the release dates to just mess with DC as much as possible. And if they move Batman v Superman now for whatever new date, they will be, we're launching a new animated series of Rocket Raccoon. Oh, God. There's literally no (laughs) end to it is the thing. But again, like because it's Netflix, I'm sort of having trouble figuring out the logic here because, you know, you could just get it and then keep it on your Netflix account until the weekend and then go watch Batman vs. Yeah, but modern day media criticism sensibilities basically demand that if you want to talk about something, you have to talk about it as early as possible. So Mm. I guess the hope is when both of these things come out, more people would, I don't know, tweet or blog or hashtag or whatever about Daredevil, so mm. social networking and everything would be Daredevil, Daredevil, Marvel, Marvel, Netflix, Netflix, rather than Superman, Batman, Superman, Batman. Well, the advice and, that it, I would and, give... And Marvel can't lose, because if people decide to watch the movie, they can say, well, okay, they went to see the movie, and they'll come back home, and they watch the whole season. So mm. nothing bad will come of it to Marvel. No. Nobody will say, well, you know, people would rather watch a two-hour movie and then come back and see a 10-hour TV show at once. It yeah. d- doesn't look bad It just bad seems kind them. of futile as, a, as yes, a gesture of rivalry because, you know, Batman v Superman, regardless of its quality, and there are going to be issues with quality. I don't need to have a crystal ball to see that because, you know, Zack Snyder, his history, his way of seeing things. But this movie is going to make bank. It may not pass Star Wars, which recently defeated Avatar and the, the, the big question is will it pass the Avengers or at least the Avengers Age of Ultron I don't think Age of Ultron would be a problem though because from what I'm hearing it didn't do as well as well Marvel. not as well but it's still very can DC beat Marvel cinematically that's the big question in anything 
ever. I think it's interesting that it goes back to the discussion of DC versus Marvel when you take into account that really there's no reason for these companies to still be fighting. The whole notion of the big two going at each other, these endless rivalries, it made sense back when they were both in New York, when they were treading broadly similar ground. And they were only comic book companies. And they were trading creators back and forth. Mm-hmm. Back then, the rivalry made sense. Now, like, I don't understand... It, it also doesn't make sense if you're an adult. It's like Bob Chipman said on Video Game Criticism, if you're having a Sega v. Nintendo v. Sony fight when you're a 10-year-old because, I don't know, Mario can beat Sonic and beat Crash Bandicoot, it's cute. When you're a 20-year-old and you're arguing, well, my company is better than your company, you look a bit foolhardy. Exactly, especially in days when people are practically trading hardware around anyway. I just don't get it. I don't. Yeah, the com- the that- company doesn't care about you either no. way. It's not like if Marvel succeeds, they will say, ah, you boosted us online. We will now give you a million dollars. We'll make a version of Age of Ultron that doesn't suck. No, you know, it is what it is at this point. And I do think you're, you're absolutely right that the corporate ownership also plays a part here. Like, it's not DC versus Marvel anymore. It is Warner Brothers versus, versus Disney. Disney. And that's a rivalry that nobody cares war. about. Nobody even cares. Yeah. Like, what possible outcome could there be of these two going at it? The only people who actually win from that is Image and Boom, because they end up being the ones who are like... We actually make comic. We make comics. We make good comics because we're actually concerned about things like creator rights and maybe not so many variants and empty stunts. And well, boom and variant. Uh, that's a whole we, other Shall we move on to the next Let's big me- media rumor? Speaking of media rumors... Uh, Ryan Coogler, the director of Creed and Fruitville Station, may be directing the Black Panther movie. Now, this was actually something that was confirmed and then retconned. So much like Secret Wars, continuity is unclear here. There was a point where, I think it was Variety, hmm. announced that Coogler had been signed. Like, officially signed, sealed, and delivered, he would be the director yeah, of Black Panther. Yeah, but at this point, he will be the third director that was, like... Everybody said, oh, yeah, he's fine and he's great. And then... Who was the second one after DuVernay? I don't, I think there was a TV guy, but maybe I'm mistaken. I know that there was another name in the running when DuVernay was the most likely hmm. person, but... Oh, anyway, uh, Ryan Coogler, event. director of the critically acclaimed Fruitville Station and the surprise- surprisingly and the surprisingly critically acclaimed Creed mm. aka the seventh Rocky movie now there's a twist uh, that I did not see I've coming. watched one of these which was Creed mm-hmm. it's good it's not the greatest film ever it's not even the best Rocky movie ever which is still the first one but it's a good well directed you know well written because he also wrote it movie well acted it's yeah. basically a very capable director bit too much in love with a tracking shot I think there were like seven or eight tracking shots throughout the movie. Well, that's when probably I like, like J.J. Abrams and Lens yeah. Flare. Once you and hear tracking, that feedback, yeah. you stop doing it at some point. I do think that Creed benefited greatly from lowered expectations. I mean, this being a Rocky movie, and after the last one... Where... And the Michael B. Jordan vehicle post-Fantastic oh, Four. yeah. Which and he, he redeemed he himself. Need, he needed... I mean, he didn't do anything wrong in Fantastic Four, aside from agreeing to be in the movie. But <laughs> he did need a win, so I'm glad that he got that. Coogler would be an interesting choice for Black Panther... But after the just crushing disappointment of losing to Verna, I feel like I don't want to get my hopes up again. Hopefully, they will finally go with someone who is allowed a bit more artistic freedom. I don't think that'll happen. See, the thing that always raises questions with me when we're talking about Marvel as a cinematic entity, right? Like Marvel Studios. To what extent do they react to widespread criticism and discussion of their shortcomings because 
one of the things that was constantly pointed out in the early phases of, like, we're talking phase one here, was the fact that Marvel's, the MCU was light on female characters, it was extremely light on African-American characters, and it seemed as if it was in response to that that we were given the announcement of a Black Panther film and then Captain Marvel. And then they were basically... Then they were pushed, pushed aside for, for Spider-Man. Spider-Man, but also for the Wasp. But the Wasp doesn't get her own movie. She, she doesn't will, get her own movie. Yeah, she That's will true. be part of Ant-Man 2, but maybe. She, but would she have gotten her own movie regardless? No. Like, is there a, Janet Van Dyne I, would never have I been... I don't think Marvel is responding to that. I don't think they care enough, because when you're that successful, you can basically allow the critics and the social critic to just go on beneath you, and some mm. people will be angry, and, and some people will say, well, that's what you're doing is not very good, Marvel. But they will keep on doing it as long as they're successful. When oh. their when their success plummets, they will maybe try shifting strategy, but I don't think they will do it by themselves. It goes to the question of the truism that's being spread right now, the, the thing that's being taken as the gospel truth, is the fact that it is known that Marvel Studios is interfering with their directors. Joss Whedon has been going on a non-stop apology tour about how they messed with Age of Ultron. We certainly know the whole story with Edgar Wright. Up until now, we didn't have any single director going over two movies. Now, the Rooster Brothers are signed to do more than two, but we'll see. I assume that Joss Whedon, when he signed up after the success of Avengers 1, was signed as, you'll possibly do as much as you can... But mm-hmm. when he said no, they allowed him to, to be let go. Yeah. But nobody, and we are talking 13 movies now, 14 coming soon, mm-hmm. we never had more than two movies by the same director in a row, which yeah. says more than need to be said, I think. That's true. And yet, look at who they keep going to in terms of possible directors. I'm thinking here, they recently announced Taika Waititi as the director of Thor Ragnarok. That was a strange That's choice. That's an unconventional was it choice. Was confirmed, by the way? Because it was no, no, in it's talks. confirmed. No, no, he absolutely confirmed. And, you know, this is someone who's known for what we do in the shadows, which is not a movie that you would associate. He also did TV, right? I think so. He was part of the the one about oh. the New Zealand band. Flight of the Concords. That's the one. Yeah. Flight of the Concords. So they seem to be doing rather well with TV directors, because mm-hmm. who came on to do Thor 2 after the big debacle? He was also a TV guy, right? Alan something, something or other. I forget we don't even remember the name. Alan Taylor. Because it seems to be their preferred model because TV directors, if nothing else, are used to having their vision basically clipped mm. in order to be part of some greater narrative. Right. When you're directing an episode of Game of Thrones, you may be a director, but it's not your directorial vision. It's the vision mm. of whoever's above you, the, the well, showrunners. Well, you're, you're also used to the idea of connectivity between... Yeah, pieces. You, like, you have to interface with... An episode that was directed by someone else, but it's all part of the same show. So these things need to interconnect. So they seem to be doing rather well with just bringing TV directors. And Maybe that's them the direction ta- they should go. But in that case, Ryan Coogler is the wrong pick yeah. then. Well, we'll see. I hope that he does get it because for all that their input seems to be modulated and regulated within Marvel Studios, it's good publicity. Like You can't deny that the people who direct these films get doors open for them afterwards. You know, these directors have gone on Yeah, to... Joss Whedon is now not just cult TV favorite Joss Whedon, he's director of the third most successful movie of all time, Joss Whedon. Yeah, exactly. 
you never hear James Gunn complaining. No. And he's doing Guardians 2. Well, we'll see what happens after Guardians 2. Yeah. If we'll it's... get to three. If we get three movies from James Gunn or three movies from the Rooster Brothers, well, James we'll Gunn, talk. But James Gunn is supposedly doing Avengers Infinity, isn't he? No, the Rooster Brothers are doing Avengers Infinity. Oh, okay. James well, Gunn is right now just signed to the next Guardians, Guardians 2. Movie. Okay. And if it's successful, I'm, they'll probably want to I'm continue sure with Guardians be. 3. That and... reminds me of another casting, uh, mm. a bit of casting news. Again, it's still in the areas of rumors and so on, but they're saying that for casting Star-Lord's father, they want Kurt Russell. No, no, it's confirmed. They oh, si- it's, they, they signed, signed him? They signed Kurt Oh Russell. my god. And apparently he never watched the original, so they That's to, okay, though. Yeah, they had to screen it to him, and he's like, what am I signing up to? Oh, that movie. I mean... That's a good choice. That is very interesting casting, it, to see Chris Pratt as the son of Kurt Russell. That That's a good choice. Yeah. Because they are working from the same character archetype. Kurt Russell in the 1980s could have sure. been Star-Lord. Absolutely. A bit more ruthless. It probably would have been. Yeah. Now I imagine 1980s Guardians with Kurt Russell. Now, who would play as Groot and what sort of makeup will they use? No, Groot would have been... A Jim Henson puppet. No, he would have been Brian Blessed. I am Groot! You know, something like that. I, I would I watch Big. that. Big! Yeah. They would have gone like... or And Rocket would have been someone like John Candy. Something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been a puppet or something, but the voice would have been John Candy. Mm. Uh, last bit of TV news. Arthur Ronson and John Wagner have announced that they've signed a contract with Warner Brothers to produce a pilot based on their comic for 2000 AD, The Button Man. Mm-hmm. The pilot will be based on the first story arc, The Killing Game. Yeah, Sean, no. you've actually read The Button Man. I have. Explain it. So, The Button Man was a strip originally published in 2000 AD. Uh, last I checked, it ran for four books. Yes. Ranging from 1992 to 2007. Premise concerns Harry Exton. He's a mercenary, a hired killer, who is pitted in a contest against other hired killers for the sport of rich men gambling on the outcome. If this seems slightly familiar, it's because the plot has been done to death. There was a film featuring Ving Rhames. Oh, uh, 200, 100 bullets? 200 bullets? No, 100 no. bullets is the comic. 100 bu- bullets is the Azarello comic. It wasn't 200 bullets either. I forget the name. Yeah, but, but it, it I, was I know with, what you're um, talking about. It was with... The guy who plays Damon Salvatore on The Vampire Diaries yes. and gets blown up in the middle. Yeah, and Liam of... Liam Cunningham was like the old boss. Who yeah, was running a bunch things. of killers running in a prison, yeah. abandoned prison, and like kill each other until the and last. And then this priest, the, the priest that they end up dragging mm-hmm. along. Not the most original of plots. No, but it's, you could it's make base, the argument yeah. that Wagner wrote it first because this is 1992, and it's a good idea for an action movie. You know, it is. If, if, if you want something which is basic, a, a plot excuse for people kill each other, and you can have enough social commentary on the side because rich people are using the poor for their own of entertainment, they are. which is something that Wagner has done, also in Dread, you know, it's a good idea. It's one of those things where you don't need to complicate it for the movie. No. You only need is, this is the guy, he's a killer... He gets paid to kill other killers. And then at, at some point, like at he the end of the first book, he wants to, to quit, quit. And the entire organization turns against him. And then it's like the story of how one super mercenary assassin yeah. is better than all of them. Which really, if you're looking for that story, you might as well read Sex Castle. <laughs> the thing about Button Man is atypically of 2000 AD stories in general. Like I'm being very, very general here because there's a huge amount of work mm-hmm. in 2000 AD. But... Button Man stands out for being, in my opinion, completely and totally ordinary. 
which is not something that you usually associate with that. Because it wasn't originally developed for 2000 AD. I, I would believe that. Wagner and Ronson did it for the competing short-lived anthology Crisis, I think. Yeah. Uh, Wagner and Mills and Grant trying to set up a competition which didn't work. Yeah. He and uh, Ronson made Button Man for one of these, but it didn't work, and so he had to bring it back to the home he left. And I mean, you and know, you when you not, read it, 2000 it, AD was meant to be a science fiction fantasy sure. magazine. There's this no is, science fiction here. Yeah, it's just straight up. It's a straight up mercenary thriller. assassin thriller thing. And even by those standards, I would say it's not the most inventive mm. form. It doesn't really do anything with the formula. Once you see where the story is going, you can pretty much guess. So turning it into a television show doesn't concern me like, oh, my God, are they going to compromise on the quality of the plot? If anything, if they take this to the right network, could end up being sort of this entertaining diversion. But I wouldn't expect too much out of it. I mean, it's Button Man, for God's sake. That's the tagline. It's Button Man. It's for, Button Man, for, for God's, God's sake. sake. Like, you know, lower your expectations appropriately. In actual comic news, oh we are going to talk about, we have to talk about the Angle <sighs> Young Grand Prix Award. Listeners cannot see me face palming right now about this news, but okay. I, I really am. So, uh, the Angle Young is basically the kind of comics. It's the big European award for which comes with very high prestige. And one of the awards given every year is the Grand Prix, which is basically... A Lifetime Achievement Award, not necessarily given to very old people. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be 90-year-old with 50-year career to get it. A lot of younger people helps. got it. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot, a lot of younger people have been nominated. One of the nominators this year, for example, was Brian Michael Bendis, who's he's not a new, fresh face, but he's not like 60-year-old with 40 years in biz. He's, oh, so they're not awarding it on quality either. Well, he he did enough <laughs> good stuff in his early years. Did so. he? Never yeah. mind. Let's not anyway, that. Anyway, so okay. there are 30 nominees in the shortlist, and mm. they're all guys. Yeah. Which made a lot of people very angry, and there was basically a movement calling to boycott the award, mm-hmm. which led to 10 of the 30 artists basically announcing, we do not want this award, including Bendis, Christopher Blaine, Francia Bourgon, Charles Burns, mm-hmm. Pierre Christine, Daniel Klaus, Etienne Duvo, Milo Manara, Riyad Saouf, John Seyfar, and Bill Sinkovich. Yeah. Matt Madden, who's one of the judges this year. Step down. Step down. Mm. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, look. And Matt Madden was angry with Angolium in the past because he said they didn't give enough attention to manga. And so after all this big hubbub, the Angolium people basically released the most passive, aggressive mm. press statement possible saying, well, we've added six women, even though they were very low on our list, mm-hmm. basically because you're forcing our hands, and if you look at history, there aren't a lot of women comic creators who deserve Quote, the Grand Prix Award. Quote, the festival cannot remake the history of comics. Positive discrimination, called affirmative action in the United States, has no place in the arts. That was just adding insult to injury. Because here's the thing, and we've talked about this before we started recording, but I do feel that it's absolutely necessary to put this on record many times when you're talking about perceptions of sexism in the industry perceptions of misogyny etc to a certain extent you could make the argument that maybe it's a misconception maybe something has been misunderstood there have been instances for example where people will argue that storm is a racist character because she comes from Africa, the continent, 
and Chris Claremont didn't know anything about Africa, so it's sort of a token gesture. There's that, right? And there are counter-arguments against that. Like, this is a situation like where... Like the whole of Giant Size X-Men 1 is basically very racist against every country? It is, but it's also the fact that they are there, right? Mm-hmm. That there is a black woman leading one of the most popular teams at Marvel for 20 years, and nobody said boo. So there's always a tension between perceptions and whether or not there's really something to talk about there. And sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. The problem with the Grand Prix is that... By their own logic, they fail. Like, their statements create logical inconsistencies to the point where you can't take them seriously anymore. For example, their implication here is that the festival reflects the history of comics, which is male-dominated. But there is a difference between saying that the industry has been male-dominated, which it has, between saying that there has never been even one female creator who you could not credit as being significant. You don't want to give something to Louise Simonson, whereas Anne Nesenti, if you're going Gail like for Simone. contemporary, Gail freaking Simone and, isn't even nominated. Again, we've looked at some of the past awards and some of the nominees and some of the winners are people that at the time weren't that old. Um, we're talking 30-year-old guys won it. It's so, not an issue of age. It's an issue of significance. Yeah, so if, like, what does, no, what no, does Milo Minara have in common with Brian Michael Bendis, aside from the fact that they both love Spider-Woman, but that's another discussion. They don't even run in the same circles. Their work doesn't intersect on any real thematic level. They're both nominated because they're both significant. What do either of them have to do with Bill Sinkovich? These are people who are recognized within the industry for making an impact. Yes. And if you recognize Brian Michael Bendis, you can recognize Pfeiffer and Hicks, or you can recognize Carlos Speed McNeil. Sure. And I, did- I mean, look. Maybe not Hicks only because she's relatively new. Like, I would understand if they didn't want to give this award, they didn't want to nominate, say, uh, Noel Stevenson, Stevenson yeah. who, for all her talent, maybe hasn't proven she's herself like four yet. Years Carla ago. Speed McNeil has been around forever. She doesn't have to win it, but you can't make the conciliatory gesture out of 30 nominees. You don't to- need, here's the thing, you don't need to make the conciliatory gesture. If you're in the business of naming the best of the best in comic, and you can't think off the top of your head of 15 women, contemporary women. This not, is not even 15. The objection here, there isn't even one. one. Yeah. Not even one woman? Emma Rios, I don't know. If you can't think of it, you're not very good at your job. Mm-hmm. We can think of it, and we're not getting paid to do this. Yeah. We're not professionals with, I assume, all the jurors, like tens of years of history in this business, and in this, in this art. So like that is bad enough. Right, the fact that they had this huge blind spot, mm-hmm. and at no point did it occur to them to address it. To add insult to injury, they had the gall to be like insulted, all passive aggressive like, about it. Like, oh, if you insist on forcing us to, well, we might as well throw a bone to some women. Do you know any? Come the, on. And the story is still in development. When the podcast is actually out, maybe we'll already know because the twelve. 12- Sorry, there were 12 people resigning from the mm-hmm. award nomination. Now, that's worth pointing out, because yeah. we didn't explicitly say yeah. that, but like there were people here who dropped out, and yeah. good for them. It, so, doesn't it take you back to the so Hugo a- Awards? Yeah, so after this response, will the 12 people will be saying, well, that's good enough, or will they say, well, in light of your very insulting commentary, Angulyam, we're still out of it, yeah. you have not convinced us, and will the women who are now part of the nomination process, will they be okay with it, or will they be saying... 
it's not good enough. You're giving us chance at one end and you're basically yeah. slapping us in the face with another and you're saying, well, you're not going to win. We've exactly. already decided that you won't win. You're just here to look good. This is the sort of thing that It goes back to one of the first things we ever talked about on the smorgasbord. I'm feeling nostalgic today in the beginning of 2016. You remember one of the first news items we ever discussed was that whole issue of the shirts that DC was printing with Wonder Woman getting... Smooched by Superman. Like redrawn in such a way that instead of capturing Superman, she's sort of swooning in his arms. Mm -hmm. And what we said at the time was... This does not necessarily reflect the reality on the ground of what's actually happening in the, in the industry, but it's indicative of a certain mindset that certain people are maintaining and they got to go. The judges here need to step down. The people who set up the nominations need to step down. You need to restructure this Grand Prix from the ground up because, like you're saying, you're absolutely right. This is a tainted process. If a woman is going to win this award, immediately, the first thing that'll pop up on tokenism, the internet was like, tokenism, tokenism they strong-armed the judges, it does, it's not real, SJW, blah, 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 blah. It already goes out. And if a woman doesn't win, it's going to be, well, you never intended to actually give this award to a... You, you just sort of threw her in because of pressure. So really, it's, it's a lose-lose scenario for them. There's a major credibility problem here. And the, the last thing, really, it's not about rewriting history. The it's about knowing the history. Yeah, it's, the Angulium is not a history book. It's an ongoing award right now in the present. And they're not awarding just the old timies. It's not... Stanley is nominated this year, but he's not the only one. And you don't have a group of 70 to 90-year-old people. Which I admit right now that I can't, from the top of my head, name a long list of over, say, 70-year-old female writers and artists. Sure. How old is Louise Simonson? Not that old. I yeah. mean, she's not a contemporary of Stanley. Lee. She was the generation after him. Yeah, but even then, it's not that, because you have Brian Bendis, who's younger than exactly. him. Exactly. It's terrible. It's a mess, and they, it's they a transparent mess. And they've basically spoiled their own celebration at this yeah. point. And this year's, It's an issue of credibility. Yeah, this year, right? Angulyam, I don't think we'll get over it. Maybe next year. But this year, whoever wins, unfortunately, is going to be a bit tainted by the controversy. Yeah, what assuming, it drew attention to uh, yeah. was the fact that not just that they allowed this situation to get to this point, but the fact that having had this light shown on them and saying this is not okay, their reaction was to act as if they were being somehow victimized. They are being forced to include... Female nominees, even though they don't consider these women to be talented or worthy of a nomination, it's just affirmative action in action, so to speak. And that's ridiculous. Affirmative action comics. If Mila Monara tells you, whoa there, Bella, <laughs> you, you've probably gone over the line. I mean, I wasn't going to pick on poor Mila Monara again. No, no. Like, because you know, he, he's had his bad press for this year. I don't think he needs any more. But... It's another one of those things where you have to tear this rotten tree up from the roots because it's just spreading disease everywhere, and it's got to go. Uh, Let's last... end on a positive note. Okay, Sean. So, Jean Luen Yang, who I think we both enjoy as uh, a writer. Yeah, writer, writer and artist of American Board Chinese, Boxes and Saints, and many other award-winning Fantastic comic. Fantastic works, and he's now working on Superman, Superman, which... It gets good reviews. It gets good reviews, and I'm going to say, like, good for you, because if you're writing Superman, you are visible. I wish it wasn't Superman. And you, you, you've read it? Uh, I've I, read I the first started reading it, like, I'll say this much. He's 
doing some pretty inventive things with the character mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have assumed most people would do. But Superman in the new 52 post-convergence is still this really weird construct. It's more of a construct than a character at this point mm-hmm. where you see the puppet strings. And that just always takes me right out of it. But okay. again, okay. Yang is doing a good job. He's a great writer. He is the first graphic novelist to be named National Ambassador for Young People's Literatures, to which I say, hell Yes, because when I'm thinking of books that I would want to give younger readers right, to promote literacy, Yang would be up there. Yeah. He absolutely would be because, you know, American-born Chinese, it's interesting, but it's also not the sort of thing where you feel shut out if you're not in the industry it's, or if you don't have the right... It's co- a book that grapples with very heavy themes while still being child readable you can enjoy it if you're 10 you can enjoy it if you're 20 you can enjoy it if you're 30 yeah so his work on avatar has been of questionable quality but it is very much something that you would give well everybody's working on avatar post the first series has been we are talking about avatar the last airbender yes we are not not the cat people no no no, even worse the the comic company can you imagine Young's avatar series I can. Boxers, I'm not sure that I want to. Boxers and Saints and Zombies. So Boxers and Saints is also, it's a historical novel. And you wouldn't think that that would be the sort of thing you would promote as young people's literature. But that is exactly what he does. He manages to tell the story of the Boxer Rebellion through two alternating perspectives. And it's really, really interesting. Yeah. So good for him. I applaud it. I hope that this does not mean that his output is going to slow down because he's not super prolific. Well, he's a writer-artist, you know. He's a double, yeah. he's a double Jeopardy. He, he pretty much... I mean, it tends to be the case where he works on one or two projects at a time and no more. So Superman has been taking up a lot of his and time. And also he's a math teacher at his, at his, his spare time, so he's a busy guy. I mean, listen, Charles Soleil and him, I don't know how it is that they do it. I think there might be more than one of them. That could be the secret. So good for him and yeah. good for the children's embassy. I hate to like put the negative slant on the positive story, but you could find so many negative examples of people that could have been held up as young people's literature just because they write comics. Do not give Frank Miller to a 10-year-old. That's the sort of thing where you don't... Not even the good Frank Miller. There are certain creators in the industry who want to be thought of as quote-unquote mature, whose output is more juvenilia than anything else. Anything that's in Marvel Max is just mm. like, okay, so you're excited that you got to use the F word. Good for you. But Is Marvel Max still a thing? Is it ex- Does it exist? It's a thing when Joe Quesada wants it to be a thing, mm. so <laughs> it both is and is not a thing. Shall we move on to the reviews? Let's move on and to the reviews. And speaking of Marvel, yes. we'll talk about a Marvel title. Yes, we will. Spider-Man Deadpool, number one, written by Joe Kelly with artist Ed McGuinness. Mm. Five-part miniseries or four? I have no idea. It's a miniseries of some kind. Uh, the big point being that Joe Kelly and McGinnis are the team that basically made Deadpool into a critically acclaimed series. Before that, he was yes. the Rob Liefeld Deathstroke knockoff. Yeah, well, and if you want to see that, Bad Blood is coming out in a couple of months, so you'll you'll be able to see OG Deadpool for <laughs> all his so the plot questionable value. involves Deadpool basically forcefully recruiting Spider-Man to help him fight. The dreaded Dormammu. <laughs> I never, I can never pronounce right. Is it Dormammu? Dormammu? I think it's Dormammu. Hmm. 
At least that's how he's always been pronounced. There's in many Doctor D's Shank there. Adaptations. Yeah. We'll find out when the Benedict Cumberbatch movie comes out. Anyway, uh, he forces Spider-Man to help him fight the dreaded Dormammu and his minions, the Mindless Ones, as part of a larger scheme to basically create a partnership with Spider-Man, who really doesn't want to be there, <laughs> really doesn't like and him, and doesn't want to work with Deadpool. Yeah. So I came to this with very lowered expectations for several reasons. One. It involves the two most overexposed characters in Marvel mm-hmm. right now, being Spider-Man and Deadpool. And we should note that this Spider-Man is Peter Parker, not Miles yeah. Morales. So. Uh, two, Ed McGuinness has never been one of my favorite artists. He's perfectly fine for some purposes. Mm-hmm. Never someone I, you know, oh, it's an Ed McGuinness-drawn book. I must buy it now. And three, Joe Kelly hasn't written a lot of stuff recently no he, well funnily enough another book of his at image also came out this week which four, is eyes. four eyes i uh, haven't a continuation. read it. i haven't read it either but his output hasn't been consistent i kill giants obviously yeah i kill but giants but that was then, years ago that was yeah like 2011 i think four yeah four or five years ago. and since then he had been working on four eyes he's not prolific and he's not timely in any way well he's doing cartoon work with men of action so he mm-hmm. gets his money elsewhere this is basically a pet project i assume Okay, so... So I, you had lower expectations coming yes. in. And it cleared the bar, if not much further. <laughs> Now, the problem is this. Deadpool, by his very nature, is a motor-mouth character that overwhelms who he's in story with. So you need a straight man. That's why you have Cable and Deadpool. And if there's ever been a character unsuited for the role of being the straight man, it's the ever-joking Spider-Man. Except that that's exactly what works for me in this story. Okay, go on. Is the fact that on the surface of it, you have this encounter. First of all, let me say, I mean, I agree with you that Deadpool has been ridiculously overexposed. And in fact, it's been a very long time since I've enjoyed a Deadpool story. Because you just uh, can't at some point. Uh, which uh, it's odd to say because a lot of this series has plot points from the other ongoing uh, Marvel titles, you know. I don't know it, nothing about no, that. No, but it refers to Peter Parker as the CEO and, and Spider-Man working for him as part of a public demonstration, which is part of the ongoing Dan okay. Slott plot points. But at the same time, this Deadpool is very much Joe Kelly's original Deadpool. Oh, yes. Ignoring all the things that people brought to the character and in that's, the last that 10 years. That is exactly why I love this so much, though. Okay. Because reading this... Three things immediately jumped out at me. First of all, Kelly lowered the dial on the metafictional humor. There are moments in which Deadpool breaks the fourth wall, but I think that that quality sort of bled out and took over the character around the time that Daniel Way was writing yeah, him. Yeah, Daniel Way basically made him into an ongoing family guy in exactly. one character strip. And then what ended up happening was that that was the template that people like Jerry Duggan took forward. So whenever Deadpool would turn up from that point, it would always be that Deadpool. And I would never really like that Deadpool because it was just too much. Like yeah, not but, only that he but, was overexposed, but that everything was cranked up to 11. Yeah, he was overexposed and he was a one-note gang. Now, And Kelly gets it. Hmm. He really does. Because, first of all, the banter is funny, right? Like, there's a moment where they're both webbed together and Deadpool's like... So I don't really know how to say this, but if you don't stop wriggling around, my katana is going to unsheath into your spider eggs. And Peter Parker is disgu- like the joke here is that Spider-Man is playing the straight man, expressing his disgust of Deadpool through jokes, which I thought was brilliant. Because when you think about the original Joe Kelly run, he didn't really have a straight man. There was Blind Al, but she wasn't 
on the field with him. No. She would always crack jokes and like swap out his sugar for salt when he's eating cereal or whatever. But it wasn't someone who was standing with him. Really, the first time that actually happened was with Cable. And that was Nicieza. That was much, much later. Yes. Kelly's Deadpool works because, on the one hand, he's toned down. The humor is still there. He still cracks a lot of jokes. When they're encountering Dormammu's mindless ones, he has brains in his belt, which he shoves into their faces to try and turn them into the mindful ones. And it works. And they start talking about, you know, you didn't even care about Carl. Well, yeah, and there's a big, there's a big something at the end of the issue which explains the weirdness sure. of it all. And, and, and he has an app that randomly flips Dungeons and Dragons alignments. It's like, today you're chaotic neutral. I can do whatever I want. Today I'm heroic good, so I have to be good. And in many ways, it's not a contradiction of who Deadpool is as a character. But it is, I think, a regression to a point where you can at the very there least was, relate to him. There was a depth to him in the Kelly Ron. All the jokes covered something. As, and the same as, is true here. Yeah, as a more... As he basically said, I'm a more extreme version of Spider-Man. So he had more jokes and he was even crazier in his personality, but the depths were even bigger. There was something very tragic to Kelly's Deadpool, which the other writers either didn't get or said, well, the audience doesn't relate to it. And to a point they were right. Waze Run is, in terms of reader-like, is far more successful. Most readers prefer Waze Deadpool. But see, I can't help wondering if the reason readers gravitated more towards Way's Deadpool was because at the time Way was writing, it was a departure. Radicalizing his humor and his metafiction and his awareness of the fourth wall at the time seemed like this huge revolutionary thing. After 10 years of that, people are sick and tired. Uh, and and sales-wise, uh, the, the readership disagrees sure. with you. Well, We're still getting like, uh, I think, four Deadpool minis sure. every month or but something. But I, I mean, again, like, I attribute that to, for all of his flaws, Deadpool is still one of the very few characters at Marvel that has a humorous foundation and laughs not only at other people, but at himself as well, right? Marvel are not big on self-parody these days. And Deadpool, I think, is one of the few characters who allows them to do that. But what Kelly gets so right here isn't just the fact that the jokes are funny, isn't just the fact that Deadpool is bouncing off Spider-Man, whose entire characterization here is, somebody get me away from this crazy person. I am stuck with Deadpool and he is driving me insane. And it's funny to see Peter Parker of all characters. It's sort of reflecting his shtick back at him because Peter Parker is the one who does the wisecracks. And here's Deadpool. He's a bit too mean for my taste. Peter Parker here, there's a difference between I don't like this guy to throwing grenades and almost killing him. <laughs> and no, beforehand, and he's like, how's your healing factor? <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, that's a bit too much. That's a bit too mean. That's something the Punisher um... would do. It seems to assume that they have some kind of history that well, the, the issue doesn't really cover. Well, they, they've they met several times in past issues of Spider-Man. I mean, there's a point where they're comparing Grey Poupon jokes. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some common ground between them, and I think that that's really fantastic. And the other thing is, towards the end of the issue, Deadpool and Spider-Man are having this talk. They've just defeated Hydro-Man, which is just as pathetic as it sounds. And Deadpool goes on this talk about how he's trying to be a better person. He wants to hang out with Spider-Man because, not in the sense that like Spider-Man can teach me how to be a hero or whatever, but in the sense of, you know, maybe it'll rub off on him. And that's the sort of thing that was very typical of Kelly's run. That there was some kind of essential humanity to Deadpool 
under the jokes, under the healing he factor, under the gags. But he can't find. He can never explain why he wants it, and he can never quite go the distance. Yeah, it's always out of his reach. And there's always a bit of mischief that he can't help doing that spoils his chances. Mm. So when in the original run, it was he could have had this redemptive moment, but. There was this great bit in Deadpool 33, it was, when T-Ray brings back all of the people he killed, and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be this moment of, oh, how evil I was, and he cracks all the blood up. blood on your hands, and he's like, you and guys he, were losers. And he cracks up, and he's basically saying, if I could kill you, I'd do it again, yeah. and then I'd go back, impregnate your mothers, and do it again. Exactly. It was a moment of, you know, he can't help himself. And that has definitely gone on the wayside in recent years, and mm-hmm. I'm so glad to see Kelly bring it back. I don't have any illusions mm-hmm. that this is going to be Deadpool going forward. It really is No, it's of, Joe Kelly's Deadpool. It's Joe Kelly's Deadpool back for an encore, and on that level, I had a fantastic time. Uh, and it is so fitting that Ed McGinnis is doing mm-hmm. the art here, yeah, because... I, I'm not super sold on it, but I'm intrigued enough. And the next issue promises to bring in Miles Morales, which would be an interesting uh, dynamic. Now, see, my problem is I don't know enough about Miles Morales' history to know if he's been up against Deadpool before. I don't think so. Or in the ultimate, like, because I know there's an ultimate Deadpool, but I don't know anything yeah, about it. Nobody cares about ultimate Deadpool. Yeah. So. So, I, I it's interesting right. enough. Yeah. Okay. You know, and again, like, this is only going to last as long as the miniseries is running. Because I know that as soon as it's done, the next person to use Deadpool is just going to be like, who left this dial on 7? It's supposed to be on 105. Hmm. And just go from there but for the duration of this miniseries i'm around mcginnis is in top form it's really great it's very very funny i enjoyed it and honestly if this became an ongoing i'd be happy it won't be but well it's marvel so their version of ongoing is eight issues and a relaunch if it's self-contained i can live with that I really can. Another year, another uh, four-issue boom miniseries. <laughs> I think it's it's a rule. It's the law. It's not enough, though. This is, I think, the only four-part miniseries that's coming out like in the next couple of months. Well, we're talking about Venus, yes. again, from Boom Studios, written by Rick Lovard and drawn by Wang Denlan and Marcio Mienes. Sean, tell them what it's about. Sure. So this is a four-part science fiction miniseries, which actually surprised me because I would have assumed that that would be Image, but... It's not Kaboom. It's, it's not, not Kaboom. Yeah, no. It's, oh, no. It's very hard science fiction, which is something we don't see very much in comics. So yeah. we have this... America me- has fallen behind mm-hmm. in space colonization. A Chinese-Japanese alliance have essentially taken control of Mars. So America, in response, puts together a team of astronauts, loads them onto a ship, and sends them out to colonize Venus instead. Maybe not the best destination. Because the Chinese are from Mars and the Americans are from Venus? That's the gag? You know, that's like, that might be the gag. And also, the protagonist is... Commander Pauline Menashe, who ends up being in command through... There's this catastrophe, and it's not a spoiler, because it's page one, half of the crew are dead, Mm -hmm. and we were about to crash, and oh my god, The title of the issue is The Saboteur, so at that point, you're not really hiding anything from the audience. Pauline basically ascends to command of the mission and has to force the crew to work together... And, of course, to work together according to what she thinks is the right thing to do. And they don't like her very much. Well, some of them do, some of them don't. Some of them respect her enough to work for her despite not liking her, and Mm -hmm. others are like, we don't like you and we don't respect you, but we don't have any choice because this is a quasi-military mission and you're in charge. So Uh what were your impressions here? 
Mm, like many of the Boom Minis, we've talked about it. It's one of the things that will probably read a lot better as a graphic novel. Mm. But even then, I don't think I'm very much interested because it's hard sci-fi, which it's fine on its own. But other than the fact, the interesting tidbit of doing it in comics, which we haven't seen a lot of, I don't think since Ministry of Space. We haven't seen a lot of hard space travel according to all the limitations that we know of today's comics. Most of sci-fi and comics is, we have this ship, it will go from A to B, and even stuff like Southern Cross, which is harder, is still, oh yeah, space travel is common enough, you know, you can just buy a ticket. So it's interesting, on that point at least, but it doesn't bring anything towards the idea other than it's in comic. The characters aren't that memorable, and mm. if you're going to do hard SF, at least impress me with your technical research, which yeah. it doesn't. It's just, well, they're in space, and then they crash, and that's it. I think what's missing here is... The hook is that instead of going with the usual tired cliche of colonizing Mars, they're going for Venus instead. And I know but, nothing about Venus from this issue. Yeah, because when you think about Mars in the popular imagination... Mm. You know, the works of Philip K. Dick and the works of, of to some extent, Edgar, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Oh, not that much, but, you know, to a certain point. And, and the of Martian. Course, even, like, Curiosity, right? Like, we've seen the surface of Mars. We know what it looks like. There's a certain image, right? It's the red planet. You always conjure these images of, you know, these dusty wastelands. Craters. craters and, and desolation. Venus has not been conceptualized in the same way i think like when i think about how many science fiction stories do you know where the idea is let's explore venus in the same way that mars has been considered it doesn't happen very often literally i know none i assume that there are but i know i mean the only ones i can think of are the ones where the entire solar system is colonized and then it's like pluto is better explored simply because it's the small one on the side or you know or mercury for example because of its closeness to the sun yeah. and the implications of that when you think about venus i know I it's mean, the it's the middle child of, of the sto- solar system you know like it's supposed to, like super storms and poisonous gases and, you know they just crash land and we see the hostile surface and it, mm-hmm. they could have just as well have crash landed in antarctica or something or listen i mean to be blunt they might have as well crashed on mars i mean in a four-issue miniseries where the premise is let's explore venus when you know that there isn't a huge tradition of doing that, the fact that this book fails to make a case as to what is so special about Venus, what's so interesting, the emphasis here is more on the fact that they crashed because there's a saboteur on board. And that they all bicker. They're all bickering, and on top of that, their objective is to reach a pre-established base that's already there, and when they get there, they find out that their troubles are not over. We won't spoil explicitly, but... It's competent, but not more than It's so. missing something. Yeah. The letter that comes at the end of the book has this whole discussion about space exploration and how and we need to think of Venus by, and as... And it's written by a guy who actually works at the Jet Propulsion Lab. <laughs> talking about like the importance of contemplating Venus in the same light that we do Mars. Yeah, NASA has and been very smart recently about using the Martian as a tool for re-establishing the American interest in the space race. And if this comic wants to do the same, you know, oh, explore space, it doesn't do a very good job at it. 
it goes back to the same problem of it's not Venus. It's like, this could have been any planet. It could have been anything. We've crash landed on the dark side of Eternia. Yeah. What is the, like, what are the unique attributes of Venus? What is the hook? I mean, even if we're going to take like the most well-tread and boring and yet popularly known alien planet, the, the planet from Avatar, the Pandora. cat people, Pandora, you know, so as soon as you see it, you know what it is. The unique attribute is that they have a giant tree and they're sitting on, what is it called? Unobtainium? Yes. There you go, and right? And floating islands. And floating islands and uh, Thundercats and all of that. So fine. I mean, those are the unique attributes of that alien world. I feel like when you get to the end of this issue and you don't know any more about Venus than you did at the start, the crew doesn't even talk about specific features of the planet. Like when they're saying, okay, suit up and make sure that nobody's going to get hurt, etc. They're not saying anything that wouldn't be true on Mars, wouldn't be true on Neptune, wouldn't be true on Pluto or on planet X. Home so, of Groot? Home of Groot. I no, mean, Groot is actually from planet X. Is he? That's the name of the planet, yes. He's the king of planet X. Really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, now you know when knowing is half the Groot. Knowing is half the battle. Half the Groot. Half the Groot. We are all half Groot. So yeah, I I agree with you that this will probably read better as a trade, as a completed four-issue mini, but I can't recommend this because no. there's no... The hook is too focused on the familiar dysfunctional dynamic of this crew that's bickering and they have a different commander and she's doing things differently and maybe they don't agree with her. There's definitely a saboteur on board the ship who is presumably Chinese or Japanese because of this whole rivalry that's set up on the first few pages. But this miniseries pushed itself on the angle of exploring a world that has not really been dealt with in the science fiction bibliography. And to have so little focus on the actual world just seems like a huge misstep to me. So our last number one is an anthology title. It's been yes. a while since we did this, right? It Island. Has. Island, Fresh Romance. Well, yeah, Fresh Romance has been and a while. And we should point out that, like Dave, this was actually published a while ago through From Monkey, Monkey Brain. Brain, but it now comes out physically via IDW. So we it's are not ta- technically a new number one, but it Close enough. Yeah. Amazing Force number one, written mm-hmm. by Ulysses Farinas and Eric... Freitas, I think. Freitas, yes. With artists, this issue, Julian Defour, uh, Matt Rhoda, and Melody Often. And Yumi Sakura, right? So what we have here are four short stories with a big twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, ten crew fights alien life forms that can appear as the loved ones of whoever drives it. Mm-hmm. Human werewolf war gets very personal. And a birdwatcher see a very unique specimen. And... Uh, Guy in a robot suit returns home after the long war and refuses to leave his armor. So, Sean, thoughts? Thoughts. Well, inevitably, I compared this to both Island and Fresh Romance when I was reading it, Mm -hmm. because we have encountered anthology books before, and the rule is still the same, right? Yeah, but there's enough. But there is one unique quality here. There are two differences, I think, from the other anthologies. A, it's the same writers. Yes. It's always going to be Farinas and uh, Freitas. Is it for the entire run? Yes, as far as I know. At least, I at least for Venus. Okay. Uh, the artist change and B, these are all short stories. That's there, the thing. Yeah, there, there is no serials. It's not 2000 yeah. AD. It's not fresh romance. I mean, to be fair, Island has had some done in one stories. Yeah, but there's always but it's serials. the exception. Yes. There are serials everywhere. Here, all four of these stories are short. They conclude 
decisively, and that's it. Presumably, second issue is going to be something else altogether. And that is both this issue's greatest strength and its greatest weakness. What do I mean by that? There's a certain amount of pages that are available for every story. Farinas and Freitas are the writers for all four of these stories, and yet I have to admit when reading them, some of these stories made me go, I wish there were more pages, and some of them were like, you should have used those pages because they really don't achieve anything. Well, what, what needed more? Well, for example, the tank story, the one that starts off the anthology. It's a story of a bunch of people who are stuck in a hermetically sealed tank because aliens have invaded Earth. And these aliens are able to shapeshift into the forms of the loved ones of the people in the tank. And at the point the story begins, the soldiers have already taken to nonchalantly murdering all of these aliens. Except the tech guy. Except for the tech guy. He's the only person who starts to feel like he would rather go out and embrace these aliens, even though they're not his family, because he hasn't seen his actual family in years. And he was so, forced to basically kill them over and yeah. over and over So there's again. a psychological aspect here that I feel like a few more pages might have given more grounding for the ending. Because the ending is completely abrupt. The situation with the aliens is resolved instantaneously. It's one of these not Twilight Zone Arthur Limits endings, which is yeah. basically, oh, it's so mean. All of the endings here are very, very mean. They are. And it's not, it's but not... It, but some of them work better than others mm. in that context. Okay. I don't know if they're all mean spirited because the other story that I thought was really good was the one with the soldier in the robot armor who comes home to his family and doesn't want to leave his power armor behind. Now you find out, incidentally, that some soldiers, when they uplink with AIs who control the robots, then there are these problems and sometimes the AI goes rogue. But, you know, the guy from within the suit is saying, no, everything's fine. I just don't want to leave. Uh, so he goes home to his wife and child. The daughter is, of course, over the moon. She loves having a robot daddy. And the wife is, you know, open up the armor. Just let me kiss you. It's been so long. And the ending twist there is, on the one hand, it does have sort of that meanness to it. Like, it's not a happy ending. But on the other hand, it sort of is. Because once you get that reveal, which we're not going to spoil, things move towards the final status quo, it makes you feel sort of okay. What I liked about the, the issue and the stories is that, yes, they're all twist stories. They're all like, ah, got you. But it's not only that. Mm. There's enough atmosphere and character within each story to justify rereading, even if you already know, oh, that's what's going to happen. It's not, it's not Tharg's future shock. No. And Although... See, Tharg's future shocks, and I'm thinking here of the classic stuff, not necessarily what goes on today because it's been a while, but when you talk about Tharg's classic shocks when they only had the five pages, right? Yeah, sometimes even less than that. I think Grant Morrison's first story was two pages. I wouldn't be surprised. Yes, and uh, I Hotel mean, Some of Felix. Alan Moore's best work was, you know, just these four-page stories with the time traveling mm. and all this nonsense. Oh, yeah, Chrono Cops. Yeah. They really did know how to pace themselves. Now, granted, 2000 AD in those days, I mean, we're saying five pages. They were very dense, dense pages. Yeah. A lot of clutter. I, I think there's a lot of story here for it's 36 pages. And there is. Like eight pages per story. And I think they all work in terms, you could say some of them needed more, some of them, some of them needed less. But I never felt one of them was badly plotted. None of them felt to me like this needed to be 24 pages or this just didn't need to exist. So my, there was mm -hmm. one story where I had that reaction. That was a wolf mother. 
that was the one where it was just like, because of the page length limitation, the story skips over important information that you have to know in order to understand what's happening in the end. Because the well, whole we thing... we understood. It's, uh, it, it's not It's clear. the classic, oh, who the narrator is. Yes, but it's who the narrator is, and the story starts off by fooling you into thinking that you know mm. what's going on. And it just gets, like, really... I don't know, maybe I misread it. Maybe it, it, it really does come off as sort of... If there had only been another page or two to breathe mm. maybe the issues with the clarity wouldn't have been a problem now tank doesn't have this problem because you have dialogue right you have the uh the scientists inner dialogue you have the conversations between the soldiers who are stuck in the tank wolf mother is mostly silent so in the absence of dialogue in the absence of text and not having enough room to develop it really gets sort of difficult to follow we should say uh, that like Island, all of the artists are great here. Oh, yes. Oh, it's just mm. beautiful stuff. I mean, Tank is my favorite when it comes mm. to the art, but even... I'd even say my some- favorite was Ronnie the Robot, actually. Yeah, but even something like Birdwatcher, which is very, you know, simple and at times overtly cartoonish, works in terms of the story necessary. It's one of these, we haven't just written the story, we found the artist for the story as we were writing it. Yeah. Which, I mean, which is what anthologies like that should do. It does have that same element as with Island, where in the event where an artist and writer are paired together, you can tell very clearly that they pick the right person for the job each time. I mean, uh, Sakugawa's artwork for the Birdwatcher story, it has that element of otherworldliness mm-hmm. when you're talking about like the specific bird specimen and, and what yeah, it is. Yeah, that's just... It, the art is making you feel what the story wants you to feel in order to move on. And I think that's a great trick. Uh, for my money, this is the best number one we've talked about this episode. Um, it's hmm. just... It, it's not perfect, but hmm. all of the problems sort of melt away in front of the beautiful art and the presentation and the idea of making something completely new. Four completely new things for every single issue. Okay. I'll tell you what. I for, First of all, I will say that this passes the standards for the anthology test that I always, always, always insist on, which is there have to be a majority of stories here that are enjoyable in their own right. If it's one out of three, if it's two out of five, you're wasting your time. Here, I would absolutely say that three of the stories are really good. One of them I didn't click for me personally, but I can still acknowledge that the artwork in that story is great. So in that sense, it is a success. Personally, my favorite would be Spider-Man Deadpool only because there's an added element there of restoration, I think, of reclaiming a version of the character that I haven't seen in a very long time and who I appreciate in spite of everything that happened while Kelly wasn't writing the character. Joe Kelly's Deadpool is not Deadpool in the way that anyone would recognize him. The movie is not going to be Joe Kelly's Deadpool, right? It's not going to happen. But I laughed at almost all of the jokes. I found the interaction between these two characters to be hilarious. That really sort of tips it up just a bit over Amazing Forest, which for all its originality and for all its cleverness and its synchronization between the writer and the artist, I still feel like Kelly's Deadpool... It has that added bit of nostalgia, and and I absolutely loved it. 
Moving on to the main course. This is Sean's choice. Oh, one of his favorite yes. comics of uh, 2015. Yes. Sean, so, introduce us. Okay, so I gushed about this during the Smorgies last episode, but I could not resist the opportunity to bring it back for an in-depth review. We're going to be talking about the first five issues of Archie, written by Mark Wade, art initially by Fiona Staples, followed by Annie Wu, and then the latest issue is Veronica. with Veronica Fish. This is the first Archie comics review, right? Uh, no, we did Archie vs. Predator. Oh, although, right, right. Although, see, the fact that you don't remember it <laughs> only goes to show you what was going well, on with Archie Well, we reviewed beforehand. the Dark Horse version of Archie vs. Predator, so it's, it doesn't count. Um, this is the first Archie-published Archie comics we're reading. To some extent, Archie is Archie is Archie, but... Okay, I want to frame this review in the context of... We're not going to go into explicit spoilers... Uh, for the overall storyline, but there are two instances that I want to draw attention to that in my mind are perfectly emblematic of what Wade is doing differently and why this is, I think, for the first time in 50 years, an Archie that people can really feel a connection with and really like emotionally identify with. So the story begins with... Archie and Betty, having been childhood friends, having been together since kindergarten, breaking up for a reason nobody knows. The lipstick incident. It's hashtag the lipstick incident. Nobody knows what the lipstick incident means. Did Betty find lipstick on his collar? Nobody knows anything. And then the first storyline that comes up is you have this Greek chorus of Archie's friends, right? These are supporting characters who've been around forever and who are being reintroduced by Wade as sort of... The meddling friends. It's Kevin Keller, it's Sheila, and someone else whose name I can't recall at the moment. And they're like, if Betchy broke up, then what hope is there for anybody else? Like, what, we have to get them back together. And they decide to enlist Archie's best friend, Jughead, to help them kick off a scheme in which, in the upcoming prom, Archie will be voted as king of prom. Betty will be voted as queen, and then they'll be back together, right? Once they're back in each other's arms, everything's going to be okay. In a traditional, conventional Archie comic, the kind that's still being produced today, right? Because Mm -hmm. despite the fact that this is a reboot slash relaunch, the ongoing Archie that we've been having all this time is still present. It's still coming out on a monthly basis. In those comics, this scheme would have worked. Archie and Betty would have fought, and then their friends would have intervened and gotten them back together, and the scheme would have been successful. Archie and Betty would have reunited, and everything would have turned out okay, because that is the world that Archie lived in, in those original stories. And it doesn't work here. That is a point of brilliance from Wade. It's like, he uses Jughead to say, if you force two people who used to be in a relationship and now they're not you're throwing them together in front of the entire world is going to be awkward and it's going to be embarrassing and it's not going to work Uh, it's a taste of realism in a world that for a very long time eschewed any kind of emotional realism or points of identification in favor of maintaining that sort of perfect riverdale Uh, that's one Mm -hmm. the other incident is much shorter but just to say When we're introduced to Veronica, at the end of her first day, she calls her father in tears. And what she says is, people are either loving her for no reason or hating her for no reason. And she doesn't understand why. And that is an insight that Veronica Lodge would never, ever, ever 
arrive at on her own in any other Archie story. She's not that insightful. Never has been. She's a cartoon character. This version, Wade understands that to give her depth, she recognizes that her reputation is affecting the way people are seeing her. She just doesn't understand yeah. what to do about it. I haven't read a lot of Archie. I've read some of it because there was this humble bundle, big sale, I think one year, two years ago. So I've read enough to realize that Archie originally, and I'm talking something general about something that's been in publication for 50 years, 60 years. Since dinosaurs walked the earth, yes. basically. Archie it was characters Tyrannosaurus been, Rex and Archie. Archie's characters have been, at best, two-dimensional constructs. You're giving them a lot of credit. There Possibly was, a whole extra There dimension. was this issue, I think, in Archie <laughs> 666. Oh my god. Which No, sorry, Jagged 200. Okay. Which was a joke about uh, Jagged basically selling his one personality bit and his friend's most basic personal traits to a witch to get free food forever. And the only thing he can offer is my hunger. Because that's the one thing he has. You know, Jughead loves food. Archie's yeah. a clumsy do-gooder. Uh, Betty's this. Veronica is that. Betty's and w- a tomboy. Veronica's a rich girl. Yeah. Reggie is the bastard. So, and what's Wade and Staples and Wu are doing here? They're not changing the character. These are all recognizable as what they've always been. Mm-hmm. They're just fleshed out. Suddenly, Archie clumsy do-goodness has a third dimension. Suddenly the tomboyism... There's is a not reason ju- for it. Yeah, suddenly sudden. the tomboyism of one is not just a countermeasure to, oh, you're the rich girl of the other. It's part of her personality. And that's why, for instance, issue four, the lipstick incident, is so good because it mm. builds on something that the last three issues presented in one way, which we're thinking, oh, well, it's the lipstick incident. It's obvious. You know, it's obvious, but then... The eternal not, triangle, right? Yeah, but no, it's not. It's there, not It's that something at all. completely different and amazing. We're not going to spoil it, but no, I will no. say what amazed me here. Like, when I found out what the lipstick incident actually was, my jaw dropped because I realized this was a situation in which this couple broke up. He wasn't wrong, and neither was she. Yes. It's a conflict that rises between... Not even a misunderstanding, but yeah, sort of a sudden realization between two people growing up and growing apart. And that's a level of complexity. And maturity that you're not matu- used to. From Archie? Like, I keep going back to that point of shock. That, Like, are you telling me that Mark Wade is writing an Archie comic in which you're looking at these characters and the ways that they're behaving and the ways that growing up is affecting them and you're recognizing that as something that is in any way, shape, or form, fundamentally human. As opposed to... Because, you know, normally what would happen would be Jughead would eat a thousand burgers and everyone would go home celebrating, right? Archie, as a genre, at some point got to the point where they started making metafictional jokes. So it was Archie versus Predator, Archie gets killed... Archie Archie versus Sharknado. They come back as a zombie... uh, What happened to that thing? Sharknado? No, Afterlife with Archie just disappeared. No, I... I, Well, that's the thing. These older versions, the older books are still coming out. Because when Archie Comics release their monthly solicitations, it's always... They start out with this book... And with Chip Zdarsky's uh, Jughead, and then immediately the they go digest. through yeah, the Double Digest. Well, at or, this point they have Archie en- loves Veronica. Yeah, but at this point they have enough back material to republish uh, Digest oh, un- un- for eternity. I mean, every issue of this book, every issue of Archie, has come with a backup strip from the 50s, 60s, etc. Which are terrible. <laughs> They're horrible. I mean, the the contrast between them only goes to demonstrate this has been a redesign. From the ground up, and yet, 
Archie is still Archie. Yeah, we've talked about it before the podcast. This is the second best reboot of 2015 because it's very close to Gem and Spirit of... Yes, it's still recognizably what it always have been and what to a degree it will always will be. But finally, it feels contemporary. It feels part of 2015 instead of this relic that somebody slapped the logo of 2015 Archie. The conceit here is that Archie speaks to the reader. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of the narrator at the same time. There's a point, I think it's either in the first issue or in the second, where he tells us Jughead's backstory. And Jughead is a character who always served as comic relief and literally nothing more. Even Chips Darsky's Jughead, which is running parallel to this, positions Jughead as sort of this wacky farcical character. You know, he imagines his friends as secret agents and he he really loves food. But Wade's version here manages to paint a picture of a character who is a social outcast and who, you know, has suffered this misfortune that had nothing to do with him. It wasn't his he, fault. He was forced into an outcast role, but he's become very zen about it. Yeah, and he like he embraced it. Punchline here is that these characters are acting more like teenagers who exist today than they would have when they were actually teenagers. Like, when the books had only been around for five, six, ten years, mm-hmm. and these characters were purporting to be American teenagers, and not so much. And here it really is, you know, the dynamic between these characters, the way that they relate to each other, the introduction. I mean, Archie's clumsiness is played for laughs. I mean, he basically... Uh, he's like a one-man demolition crew. Another book, like a typical Archie book, would have made that the butt of the joke. The thing that Wade draws your attention to here is the fact that his friends go out of their way to help him. And there are results to his clumsiness. He loses jobs because he can't, yeah. he can't stand up straight without And because he loses his job, he can't maintain his car. And because he can't maintain... Like, there are consequences Cause for their shortcomings. It's yeah. The, it's... It's real, well, real life. It's comics, real life. It's, it's not just it's cartoony. It's realistic, this is a realistic teen drama that is using the iconography of Archie. There's a minor, minor, minor undercurrent of darkness here in terms of these are kids who are dealing with real problems. I, and yet it's not after school special real problems. Yeah, I think the important thing is that it starts off using the basic creations of the Archie canon of everybody thinks of everybody else in this very simple terms of Betty thinks of Veronica as one thing and Veronica thinks of Betty as one thing and Jughead thinks about them as another thing. Everybody has a very clear conception of the early Archie comics of oh oh you're the couple and you're the mean one and as the story progresses oh everybody witnessing the depths of other characters. We're introduced to Reggie in issue 5. Yep. And in issue five, he's just this mean asshole of a guy, but I assume as the series progresses, we'll see the other sides of him. Because nobody's just a one-dimensional cartoon strip. Yeah. Here. Even in the context of, you know, Reggie is only introduced in issue, he's introduced at the end of issue four, he comes into play in issue five. And the way that they play him here, I mean, when you traditionally think of Reggie, you think of... I don't. Well, who does, exactly. <laughs> but it's like when you look at the original Reggie, the, the idea there is very clearly to take sort of Archie's good-natured yet financially humble uh, personality and then flip it on its head. So Reggie's evil and rich and stuck up. He's basically 
Veronica without that notion that Veronica without even the, the slightest redeeming the value. Purpose. Yes, but Wade uses him here to such great effect without making him a cartoon character. Like this is not someone who twirls his mustache, mm. whereas the original Reggie, if he were capable of growing a mustache, would twirl the hell out. We, of we it. should talk about the art because we keep saying Less, Wade, 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 because Fiona Staples redesigns. Man, oh mm. man, they're amazing. How can you make something like Jagged, who still wears that stupid crown and the crown and, and the, the shirt and the, the, the nose? Yeah, and Archie even calls that like his formidable nose. It shouldn't work. It shouldn't by any stretch of logic. No teenager in 2015 would dress like this. He doesn't works. Yeah. So I don't know. You There's like this Fiona Staples magic. When Kevin Keller was introduced, you remember they drew him in a clear example of like trying to pander to an audience without really understanding that audience they drew him as like practically something that came off the Sistine Chapel so he's like blonde blue eyed and like radiating a ridiculous halo of goodness yes. and when you see him the way that Fiona Staples draw him is he's just a blonde kid that's it these people look so much less cartoonish and again like we were talking about synchronicity between writer and artist it is absolutely here When, even, even with the other artists, by the way. Sure. I mean, well, we're st- I mean, Staples is in the first three issues, so I think she really does set the tone. So you have, like, a lot of this is communicated through facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Archie, you know, when Archie is talking to the reader, so, you know, the, the looks on his face when he's saying all these things, Jughead doesn't say much, but it's all in his face. Now, Annie Wu... She comes in in issue four, and it's a bit of a turn. Yeah, it's a bit too... too it loses much. a bit of that distinction, I think. Mm-hmm. Because with Staples, it's like the looks on their face communicate everything that Wade is not writing in words. Mm-hmm. With Wu, it's a little more vague, but not to the point where there's any kind of regression back to cartoon Archie. And the last artist for issue five, I felt also... Veronica um, Fish. Veronica Fish. I prefer her to any Wu, actually. Um, yeah, in the sense that, like... When she draws Reggie, like this is Reggie's introduction, it feels a little, like not as expressive as Stables, but I don't know what the status quo is for this book well, because I, it's it very strange to be, to be rotating crews. Well, no, because what happens is this book has also been delayed substantially. Mm. Archie 5 should have come out last month in 2015. So Fiona Staples is obviously busy with Saga. Mm-hmm. So that would make sense. Annie Wu, I think, she, is she doing Constantine with... I don't know. She I might have, be. I have no idea. I know she's doing something for DC. And then, so Veronica Fish comes in here. So I don't know, like, is there any attempt here to be consistent within the context of Wade's run? Because I feel like they need that. And the interesting point, I think, is how long is Wade going to keep on going? And what happens after Wade? <sighs> is this the sort of relaunch that once Wade is done, they will say, well, that was 2000... 15, 2016's Archie no, here's reboot. cartoon Archie again. Here's back to classic or someone else. Or is this a status quo? Are they going to try and keep this version of Archie and Friends going for a long time? Well, the thing we have to remember is that this reboot was the product of that failed Kickstarter. Yeah. So I don't know. Clearly when they... There are rumors about, when they about financial it. difficulty in Archie, which yeah. is not appearing in the foreground, but the company has like lawsuits from various owners flying from side to side yeah. for years and now. And there hasn't been any discussion on the financial success of the reboot. I know that in terms of the two books that have come out so far, Zdarsky's Jughead and here uh, Wade's Archie, critically they have been 
very highly well it's the first time that these books sell anyway in a direct market level but the question is when they collect this into one of these stand and the mini market uh digest which they sell for kids mm-hmm. will kids buy that that's the audience <sighs> they want to reach you they don't want us they don't want the right. I, i don't know the 30 year old estates See, from the, the uh from comics with, criticism but it buying actually it might in 10,000 copies it might work better because what we were struggling with or at least me i mean i, I won't speak for you on this what i was struggling with was precisely the notion of Why on earth would you read Archie in 2015? Because in my head, like, I remember this whole legacy of the character, you know, uh, sugar, honey, honey, and all of that. But for a generation that's growing up now, Archie hasn't really been prominent outside of the comics. They are doing that horrible, horrible Riverdale live action miscarriage at the CW, but that hasn't, you know, nobody's talking about that. So I, I don't know that a younger generation would have that obstacle of oh god it's archie you know what i mean it might be that if this is your first exposure to archie you're really going to get into it and then you read the double digest and like what the hell's going on yeah but are there enough of us the type of readers like us to support something like that for a long um, time i don't think so well wait does it have if a the comic if the comic industry would dance to our tune you know island oh, would, be, would be different yeah island and gem would be but, the number one bestsellers and and dc would would have been out of business but like the decade smart ago thing that archie comics did this time around was that it is the fact that they took two creators who have relatively stable fan bases who follow them from project to project wade is a person who commands a great deal of respect within the industry not necessarily saying that he is writing All of the A-list projects. He's not an architect type. But people who enjoyed Wade's Daredevil would probably have followed him onto Archie. And Chips Darsky is absolutely, you know, he has this whole cult around him. I can certainly believe that people who read his Howard the Duck would then read his Jughead, especially with Erica Henderson involved. They did a good job of getting this sort of cross-section of writers and artists who have existing fan bases. I mean, I can see people picking up Archie, not reading it initially, but just picking it up because Fiona Staples is on it and she did Saga and Saga looks fantastic. So let me see what she's doing on Archie as sort of a curio. And then the story compels you to keep going. And Erica Henderson has been doing Squirrel Girl. Now, going forward, I remember that one of the titles that was talked about during the Kickstarter before it imploded was they wanted to do... Sabrina, right? No, they wanted to do Veronica with... What was Adam Hughes? Adam Hughes. Which I, seemed like a misstep at the time. It seems like a misstep because it's Adam... Not because Adam Hughes is a bad artist, because he's so slow. How can you do an ongoing with Adam Hughes? Well, that and the fact that he would probably give Veronica, like... Um, how no, can, no, how he's can I not, put this nicely? He's not, he's not Frank Cho. He can, he's not Frank he Cho, but to, he has a tendency yeah, to go but, there. No, he can tone it down when needs be. Mm. The, the thing is how can I he mean pro- he didn't on red one let's be fair he produces like what he can produce th- two issues a year Adam Hughes maybe I don't know he's I been mean, doing only covers for lots of time Sabrina I, I, I just I don't see the point of rebooting it unless they're, they're going with that Mike Manola pitch <laughs> otherwise like, I well there is the, the I don't know why there's you... the terrifying adventures of Sabrina which is pretty good but it's also incredibly slow I think there are four issues in two years and, and also Like I would I would warn against Sabrina because the world that Wade has created is by definition no, not no, cartoonish it, do, enough. it doesn't need to be a crossover it doesn't have to be part of the this world but it, unless she do, shows up as like a Wicca no but they can do it in the same style 
Erica Henderson, Sabrina, I would read. But Erica, mm, would I read her, Erica who, Henderson, who, who Sabrina? Who wrote the Midas Flesh? Um, Ryan North. I would read Ryan North, Sabrina. Gladly, would you? I, gladly, I will. But then, what it, it would have to be standalone? Then it would have to be yes, something yes. that exists on well, its own. Well, okay, merits. if you want something connected, I don't know, Josie and the Pussycats. Now that would be something. Well, but then we have Gem and the Hologram. <laughs> it's like well, yeah, it's why? hard to sort of. You can do more than you t- could. You have you have so many Spider-Man books. You can do two books about about an all-female rock band. Yeah, it's legal. The I've question, checked. No, oh, absolutely. I think the the question is more that be, I think because of the financial insecurities, we don't yet know what the plan is for this reboot. It started out as sort of this initiative at last view like in terms of the latest solicitations that have been released there hasn't been any word of a third rebooted archie book or what the plans are or who's well there there also have this a whole superhero line dark circle yeah but nobody cares about that yeah well i've tried it it's It's, fine it's it was average superheroes i mean wait the fox was pretty good is that the one with the drug addicts cop no 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 that's the hood that's wade the fox with dean haspiel is a very light-hearted fair we already have that same culture. We already cash. have enough superheroes. Yeah, by top. We don't creators. have enough of books like Wade's Archie. That's the thing. And to be honest, like if he had shaved off the serial numbers and pitched this as an original work, and it wasn't Archie Jughead, I don't know if it would work mm. because a huge part of the appeal of this book is precisely seeing how. He took these templates and deconstructed them and put them back together in a way that seemed so implausible in terms of, I mean, you're doing this with Archie. Who would have thought that there was anything in Archie to work with? And again, like people, read the lipstick incident. You will see for yourself. That is a scenario that makes so much more sense than anything that Archie has done in the last 30 years. So how many thumbs up? I wish I had more arms. All of the thumbs. All of the thumbs, all of the fingers, all of the digits. It's I'm here until... I mean, look, I share your hesitation in saying, like, what happens after Wade leaves, right? If he's around for, say, 12 issues, and then the next person is Garth Ennis. No. Oh, 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 okay. That would have no. that would have train wreck potential. But like, well, you know, Kevin s- Keller has been in the army, so you could do that. But you want Garth Ennis writing a gay character? I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think that that would end well. But um, Garth Ennis is uh, who would Arch- be like an unlikely, like someone that you don't want. Jeff Loeb. There you go. <laughs> Jeff Loeb's Archie. I, I don't think anybody Chuck wants that. Chuck Austin's Archie. Uh, no, listen, Chuck Austin. Is dead and gone. Rob Liefeld's Archie. There you go. Now you tapped into like the worst fear. You're like Spawn. You're like you just tapped into Ellen like the dark. Moore's Archie. That's Lost Girls. You know what? We've I... already seen Lost Girls. You know what? <laughs> you know what? It's not gonna happen. I would love to see Ed Brubaker take a shot simply to see what would happen because he did the, the dark Archie thing in Criminal. He could take the characters as Wade established them and maybe turn it into, like, here's just, like, a noir Archie story just for kicks. No, I feel like he could do I, that. I want to see Brubaker stretching his wings a bit and doing something other than noir, because I love his noir. Yeah, but I don't think he has it in him anymore. It's been a long time since he's done anything that wasn't yeah, and in the, the X-Men wa- of... and the X-Men run wasn't very good. The X-Men run wasn't good. I mean, Velvet is fantastic, but Velvet, despite being a spy story, still falls into a lot of the tropes that... He yeah, usually associates a, with It was supposed work. to be a James Bond, but it's more George Smiley. Yeah, that that's absolutely fair. So, 
I mean, Jason Aaron's Archie. No, thank you. Like, it would have to be someone who has. Well, j- you can always kinda... just steal John Ellison. But then that would mean no more Giant Days. Oh, you can do two series at once. Can and then, he? And then we can do a crossover. Archie meets Esther. Yes. That is a book that I want. Esther and Betty and Veronica. Esther, Betty, and Veronica. And then. Oh wow! Okay, it's like it's like the possibilities are endless. But anyway, so this has been a very successful relaunch. I think deserving of attention because it's one of the few relaunches that succeeds on its own merits. We have seen so many attempts at reinvention fail either because of over fidelity to the original or just not understanding the original at all. And Wade really finds the middle ground here, and it's. It's fantastic. It is absolutely a. I mean, I, I keep bumping up against my own disbelief that I am recommending an RG comic because what? But it's the truth. So, it yeah. is a transcendent read, it's, and I highly recommend it's it. It's good to end on a good note. Yes. So that was Archie One Five. Mm-hmm. Buy it, read it. I'm Tom Shapira, and I'm Sean Edry. Until next time, bon appetit.